Welcome back to PGAP Live at the NINA conference, Life After Capitalism. So what brings you to the NINA conference? You did. <laughs> so that's why I'm interviewing you. <laughs> you are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast. The one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Welcome back to PGAP. I'm your host, Michael Bayliss. Our co-host, Mark Allen, is on a short break this episode, but he'll be rejoining me with a vengeance soon. I pay my respect to the Noongar Manang and the Nangawal people across whose lands this episode is recorded. Upon their lands never ceded, do we continue to pursue infinite growth on a finite planet without consultation or consent to the peril of all that calls the biosphere home? In mid-November 2023, I took the epic journey from Albany, Western Australia, to Canberra to present at the New Economy Network Australia conference titled Life After Capitalism. I represented Sustainable Population Australia for the presentation, The Impact of Population Growth on the Housing Crisis, which was based on a report I wrote with my colleague, Dr. Jane O'Sullivan, The Housing Crisis is a Population Crisis. In 15 minutes, I tried to cover the main points of the report, tie together with my own housing crisis experience, and then look beyond toward a broader post-capitalism perspective on how we can more holistically manage housing and population policy. This ended up being a very content-heavy talk, in which I ended up talking Mickey Mouse style in order to make the time limit. Despite this, I received a lot of positive feedback from people who chose to speak with me after the fact, which is always a relief considering the subject matter. The conference at large was a very inspiring three days, a huge download of information and passion from the 100 attendees who were dedicated to move society away from the death throes of growth at all costs neoliberalism. Speaking for myself, I was hugely inspired. One of the benefits of a face-to-face conference was in actually meeting the very people I've been collaborating with online and remotely. It helps make everyone and everything seem more real. Another benefit is the fact that when you work remotely, you're not always aware of the impact your work is actually having. In the case of PGAP, who out there is tuning in? So I was hugely ecstatic to find that two of the attendees at the conference were there as a result of my work. One attendee, a fellow member of SPA, was there because of an e-news call-out. Another attendee was there as a long-time listener of PGAP. And may I give a shout-out to Joe Fay, who you heard at the intro of this episode. One of the other reasons I was at the conference was to record live for posterity many of the fantastic ideas that are so relevant for all of us degrowthers. I would like to give a shout out to one of our listeners, Tim, who donated to PGAP a really fantastic portable recorder to use at the conference. With this amazing piece of technology, I was able to record a collage of presentations and one-on-one interviews with a variety of attendees to provide a snapshot of the conference for those who couldn't make it. Keep in mind that despite the impressive technology, the recording took place in large meeting rooms, noisy hallways, and in one recording of comedian Tom Ballard for the first night's dinner entertainment in a scout hall. 
None of these are conducive for crisp sound production, and although I edited the living hell out of these recordings, none will sound sweet and dulcet to your ears. What you lack on crispness, you gain in breadth, depth, and immediacy, so, you know, apples and oranges and all that. I'm going to begin the episode with a welcome to country from Uncle Wally, who opened the conference, uh, followed by a talk from Dr. Mary Graham, Kombu Mary person, on the plenary topic, Societies Before and After Capitalism, Indigenous Perspectives and Relationist Economics. Law, then one of the things that we have to do under that law is uh, 
because it's not really a work of the country. Uh, in the old days, uh, if we were going onto one of our neighbour neighbour groups country, uh, <coughs> we'd have to seek permission to, to be there. So all that and then was like, uh, say we were going into one of our neighbour groups country, uh, like the Ewan group, for instance. If we knew that we were going into the Ewan country, we'd, we'd send somebody out from our group to find somebody from their group with a message stick to say, seek permission to be there. So we're seeking their permission to go onto their country, use their resources uh, for a short period of time. It, it's those little things that, that mean a lot to us as, as uh, Aboriginal people in, in uh, abiding by our uh, customs and laws. Um, so to abide by the one that I'm here for is uh, uh, what we, what's been labelled as a welcome country, but we still consider it to be a right of passage on someone else's country. Here on Monobore Country, we, we, we not only uh, give you permission to be here and, and make use of the resources, but we also give, give you a protection while you're here as well. So we're going to look after you in two ways while you're on country. Uh, we're going to look after you in a physical sense, and we're going to look after you in a spiritual sense. Now the physical part is going to be taken care of by what we call our uh, spirit of the land. So that means that if you're walking around on Nunawar country, treading foot on country, the land itself will look up and look out for you, make sure that nothing really bad physically happens to you while you're on country. Because as Aboriginal people, we all know that we all come from the land itself. We're put here in a physical sense to look after the place, to care for country. And then when our time is up, we go back to the land. Now, our past generations that have been through that process are are now residing in the land itself, so we refer to them as our ancestral spirits. So they're the ones that we're going to get to look after in the spiritual sense. Now, everybody here, you've got your own personal auras, and you know about those things, it's something you carry with you all the way through your life. And you know at times you, you don't feel that good because under our belief systems, we know there's bad spirit out of the country as well, and that's something you can't see and touch. But it does have a tendency to latch onto your auras. <clears throat> That's why we call upon our ancestral spirits to remove that bad spirit. Just to make sure that they know I'm here, uh, giving you guys right of passage on, on the normal country, I, um, I have to make a little bit of noise and uh, call for those spirits to come to them. Okay, so <clears throat> I'm going to make noise with club six.
can feel that those spirits have now joined us. Hopefully you can feel their presence as well. As I said then, the spirit of the land will now look after you as you walk around on the country and make sure that nothing really bad physically happens to you. At this very moment, our ancestral spirits are going around to everybody here, looking at your auras to make sure there's no bad spirit that might be latched onto it. But if they do find that stuff, they just grab hold of it. Toss it off country, get rid of it. Something we don't want here. We don't want to affect you as a person, and we certainly don't want it to affect the land that you are. The spirits there ask that you do two things while you're on country. First one, really important one, respect this place that you're in. Look after it, care for it, as we have now done for thousands of years. Secondly, I want you to do, respect and be kind and courteous to other people that you meet while you're on country. So if you do these two things for us, the spirits will then harmonise with your state of the North Country. So may the spirits be with you today, tomorrow and for always. I'll uh, finish off with some words in language. Darunona, darunono. Younger, we don't worry, don't mind. Never gonna worry. Yomone. This land is not a woman land. We've all come together today. Well, Chanyamala, Yala. Thank you. Bye. Mary and Yin, it is our great delight to welcome you to the new Economy Conference. Um, we have about a hundred lovely people ready to hear your words. Um, and now I'd love to introduce Mary Graham, dear friend, remarkable thinker. Mary, over to you to share with us for about 20 minutes. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm um, Mary Graham. I'm from the Gold Coast, actually. This is my father's people's area. You can bear language people um, here. And my mother's side is Waka Waka from um, several hundred kilometres northwest of uh, Brisbane. I guess the first thing I want to say is um, the main um, topic is to do with capitalism. The first thing I remember, one of the very first um, several books that I was reading and learning and you know, as a student and so on, some very good or great thinkers really have been talking about, have been talking about and debating about how to make capitalism um, a bit more civilised, you know, where um, you are more than a consumer. So people have been trained, really, in a way, to be a consumer, capitalistic-wise. I think, um, myself, I think it's propaganda, to say that we all must, especially in the Western world, but um, many cultures too, of course, that very important to have choice. So the more choice you have, like instead of having a choice between two different toothpastes, you have a choice of 10 different toothpastes, and so on and so on. I thought that was very clever. And all part of that um, way of getting people to train people to be proper consumers. But we've come to a kind of, um, oh, what would you say, a crossroads? More than a crossroads. Just imagine a group of homo sapiens gathered on the edge of a cliff, an existential precipice, wondering what to do now and where to go. So we're 10, 12,000 years ahead of large-scale agriculture, the birth, uh, the coming into being of great empires, and, and of course the state with the smallest, and gone through a whole range of what some people might call Anthropocene changes. I don't care for that word myself, um, but people, you can pick out your choice of words. And so people have been 
their own role in life has been changed. I always think it's more um, uh, valuable to see all the changes over time and what has happened to people thinking and being, think of it, thinking of themselves as who they are and where they're going, and so on, and how all these changes have marked us out, you know, everybody. Colonialism and imperialism and things like that playing a huge role, huge role, uh, in all of these, these changes. I think uh, old cultures, very old cultures, like Aboriginal culture, has a lot to sort of um, talk about these things, uh, partly because of this, the great age, you know, the society, Aboriginal society is a, of great age, you know, so they've picked up a few things about human nature and, and the environment and so on and so on. One of the things that we did, I think, believe that we worked out is having a sense of coherence is extremely important. In a capitalist context, that means having a society of what is called in chemistry about a steady state situation. And it struck me straight away that um, how, how is it possible to have a steady state economy without having a steady state society, you know? How will you do that? It's like putting the car before the horse comes. In the great scheme of things, over a long, long period of time, what Aboriginal people looked at as how to have a, a coherent society. A sense of coherence is a, a general feeling of confidence that one's environment is predictable. You might say that, say for example, the, um, the environment itself is predictable, although there are bits and pieces of it that are not predictable, like as in, you know, earthquakes and you know, volcanoes going off and so on and so on, but overall it, the slow changes of rivers changing their course and so on. So people, humans, have to learn to live with all, all of this. And we worked out pretty well, I believe, a pretty good steady-state system where people do have this idea of uh, confidence in their system, in a system of um, political and social equilibrium, I guess. People believed in it. The one thing we didn't work out, having worked out practically everything else, we didn't work out, you know, the... Um, sudden arrival of people with a completely different view of life, completely different social and political system, and so on and so on. The most important one is to have a positive relationship with your environment, basically the land. And it's not a case of looking after the country full stop. So it's not just about environmentalism, it's about the kind of social and political governance ordering that you have. And that's what a good friend has described our system as, a, long, a very long-term experiment in human dominating and aiming for this kind of coherence. Somehow, to me, capitalism doesn't seem to be very coherent, not at all. The problems of it uh, enable certain groups to dominate, basically, and you can easily point straight to colonialism and imperialism and things like that. But it's about uh, meaning about life, too. So you can have all you want, you know, the unwritten rule about, about capitalism to me. It's like something like, um, um, I want what I want and I must have what I want. And no, nothing stands in the way of that. And so people go for it. People who supply and people who make things to give people meaning in life by buying things and so on and so on. But it's a lot more complex than that. It is about a relationist idea. Uh, and a survivalist idea. Now, they're not excluded middle kind of ideas. They're entangled, both of them. 
So a relationalist idea is the first major one is to do with land. And then that becomes a kind of blueprint, I guess, a map for the kind of social and political system that you have. Have this idea of uh, looking after something that's larger than yourself. Something that's large, and of course the only thing larger than ourselves is what we're walking on, of course. So uh, it's a reciprocal, you know, a, a system of reciprocity. It goes something like, it's, it's invented us, uh, it continues to look after us, um, right to the extent of giving us meaning in life, basically. And of course we're not the, the most important beings on Earth. We are forever obliged, and that this obligation never finishes, to look after it back. That has to go on all the time. Not, not just because it's a, it's a good idea, you know, paying back, you know, basically. But somehow all that has been pushed to the back. So uh, somehow the essence of this relationalism starts with, with land. And of course, it's all part of capitalism now too, isn't it? You know, you, the very idea uh, of buying land, you buy land. You buy and sell land. You buy lots of land. You buy a whole lot of other people's land. And so on and so on, it just goes on and on. Uh, the environment is an autonomous thing. It owns itself. Nobody actually owns it in the Aboriginal thinking. But we also, because we're culture and we're nature and culture, you know, we have reflectivity, uh, unlike other life forms. So we have to think in this, this way to pursue this coherence about life, not just what is wanted or what is needed or what is required, and, and so on and so on. Um, a proper idea of thinking outside of the self is actually efficient, an efficient, steady-state society where uh, your energy, spiritual energy, you can call it, is there, you, you have respect for it. You have this idea of working um, with each other rather than competing. So one of the key things about capitalism is the competitiveness, which simply isn't there for in the, in, in the um, thinking and Aboriginal uh, mindset, I guess, competing over things. Conflict is there, yes, conflict is there, but the idea of having, um, the, the traditional idea of having very clever, very well thought out uh, systems of managing conflict, not solving it, managing it, hundreds and hundreds of places, they're all interdependent and they're all... Um, it's like a multipolar, I don't know if people are familiar with that term, multipolarity, it's multipolarity in one country actually. So they're all interdependent, they're all autonomous groups. Nobody dominates anybody else, it's not allowed, what's against the law. No um, wars of conquest, nothing like that. A different logic, um, but it's combined with the idea of stewardship. In a, in a great, a one-liner is our system, which I always call a, a worldview. I take that from the German word, if anybody speaks German here. Um, um, it's a worldview, that's all it is. So it's not a religion, it's not an ideology, it's not even a philosophy, actually. And the main one of it, uh, this one-liner, is it's a secularised, ecological, uh, uh, collaborative stewardship system, in a nutshell. So all of that would be a really good addition to or a replacement, considering we're right at the you know, edge of the you know, existential process, <laughs> um, and do some rethinking very quick, um, you could have that uh, one line about stewardship, putting capitalism in its right place.
I'm not a, an Aboriginal, I don't, you know, I'm not saying get rid of uh, capitalism, um, but how do you civilise it? That's the, that's the question I ask. How do you civilise it? And again, I'm not talking about a, a moral philosophy, how to moralise about it or anything like that, but it has done some pretty bad things over time from its, its beginning. Um, but that's what it would mean if you had a stewardship system. You, you can't leave anybody out or behind. This is in rich Western countries too. There wouldn't be that kind of difference between uh, different sectors of the society. You'd have a far more stewardship to be a civilised society. So I reckon we, what we have are just states, not civilisational states at the moment. We've got to get something... Uh, turn things around. Um, the other idea is uh, uh, whether or not people now have the capacity to do it. The, you know, the idea of uh, self-awareness should, or to, so we can say not just self, but collective self-awareness, uh, whether or not people have the capacity to self or collective um, correction. You know, you're aware of things, and that's all right. And there's heaps and heaps and millions of volumes written about how people are aware now. But do they have the um, capacity to self-correct into uh, a steady state um, system where everyone is looked after? And it sounds idealistic. And again, I'd say, uh, just to keep reminding uh, people that it's not a moral philosophy we're talking about. We're talking about trying to have a society that's um, efficient and not a waste of energy. Because having wars and over-the-top capitalism and competitiveness and so on is a waste of energy. I don't think anybody has confidence, nobody anywhere has confidence in their government political system now. They just have habits. Uh, listening to PGAP and I'm your host Michael Bayliss and what I love about this conference and the broader work of New Economy Network Australia is with regard and inclusion it has for the wisdom of First Nations people and cultures. It is true that the oldest living cultures in Australia had thriving and equitable societies for at least tens of thousands of years and our current imported culture in Australia will struggle to push for a couple of hundred before it consumes itself and everything around it. This is important for anyone in the post-growth and degrowth movements. There is much from pre-colonial times that we need to learn from. The next three recordings include excerpts from the plenary session What's Wrong With Capitalism Anyway, led by Tim Hollow from the Green Institute, followed by Will Wellbeing Economies Save Us from Gareth Hughes, Wellbeing Economy Alliance in New Zealand. We will then finish this segment with an interview from Janet Salisbury from Women's Climate Congress. Why is capitalism a problem? Have you ever played Monopoly? And you play with someone like my husband who gets in straight away, buys the properties, and I spend the rest of the game renting everything, and I have no money and he always wins. That's capitalism. Whether through brute force or ancestral luck or colonisation or invasion, someone somewhere moves in, owns something, and everybody else has to pay for it forever, ongoing, while everyone else accumulates. That's the Michelle Maloney blunt force definition of capitalism. (laughs) 
I don't like it. I don't like the small percentage of people earning stuff and everyone else struggling. That's my need as a cooperative. But I'm going to hand over to Tim Hollow, who's written important books and things, and he'll tell you more about what capitalism is. Thanks, Michelle. Yeah, interestingly enough, I don't know if you know this story, but the game Monopoly was invented by a, an amazing socialist woman in England in the late 19th century <laughs> as a way of explaining how bloody awful capitalism is. And so, yeah, it was interesting to me when I found that out because I always hated playing Monopoly as a kid. And I don't know whether, whether it actually helped make me an anti-capitalist. <laughs> what is capitalism? So this is really important for us to frame this conference, and I know pretty much everyone in this room must have thought about this a lot as well, but it's useful to try to go through these definitions and think about it. Capitalism, in the way we often think about it most, is essentially an economic system, above all. It's a system of how you maintain an economy which is characterised by the private ownership of the production of goods and services for sale and trade and run through free markets, which are based on government, essentially, ensuring that these markets are operating in a particular way. So these are the kind of the key aspects of it. Private ownership of the production of goods and services being the key factor. So it's far more than simply mercantilism or business systems of trade and business have operated sorts of ways and all sorts of different systems. Capitalism is one which puts these factors at its core. And this, I think, is the really important point that takes us to where we are here today, because capitalism, crucially, isn't just an economic system in the way it operates. It becomes a social and a political system. It becomes, at core, a system of power. And this is what Michelle was getting at with whether it is through conquest, colonialism, other forms of taking power and control. That is what capitalism has become. So in terms of a social and political system, um, it's characterised by a number of things. Enclosure of the commons is something we've talked a lot about at these conferences over the last few years. Management of commonly held resources was the way that every indigenous society managed land since time immemorial and the enclosure of these commons is central to how capitalism comes to become a system of power, taking ownership of that land and requiring others to pay rent or, or in some way uh, operate underneath that ownership. Through that, you get to this capture of politics and democracy, which is at the core of so much of what we see, um, that the commons of the way we do politics and democracy has been closed as well, such that through the power of money, profits, trade, ownership of the means of production, that captures the way we make our decisions in common too. And central to that is uh, that third dot point, that essentially the way capitalism has operated and become to take power so effectively, as well as through sheer force a lot of the time, capitalism became global through largely the force of colonisation. But what it does then is it colonises our minds. It colonises our cultures. It colonises our own understandings of ourselves. And it does that through converting all social and political relations that we have into capitalist ones. So everything that we have previously 
done through commons practices or through interrelationality in different forms becomes converted to a production of goods and services privately owned for profit. Um, and I think we all see that in so many ways and that's what we tend to be struggling against. Then they become measured and mediated by money and profits. Um, and we see that so much in the way we interrelate to government these days, not being government about the way we come together to make decisions together, but a process that is mediated between citizens and government through money, through trade, through profits, and directed by that. I joked at the very beginning, for those of you who were in the room, about welcome to life after capitalism, we're all here. But there's actually a really powerful critique that started to arise being um, brought to us by people like Amos Varoufakis and Corey Doctorow and Mackenzie Walk, suggesting that we actually genuinely are already in life after capitalism. Um, Mackenzie Walk put out a book a few years ago which he called Capitalism is Dead, Is This Something Worse? <laughs> and Yanis Varoufakis' new book is called Techno-Feudalism. And so I think this is, brings us a really interesting way of thinking about where we are today and what we're all working on at the moment, because the shift from feudalism to capitalism, and forgive me any Marxist scholars in the room because I'm going to massively oversimplify, is one which moved from rent, control of land essentially, and rent of that land, rent of access to the means of production, to the ownership of the capitalist means of production, which tends to be manufacturing goods and services. And this critique suggests that the technological world we're in today with information technology has converted it back to a rental system whereby everything we do, including production of goods and services, is being mediated through renting access to information technology, renting access to the internet, essentially. Um, so I think that's a really interesting critique that we need to think about. Are we even still in capitalism? How does that change the way we do things? You know, we see brutal invasions of Gaza and Ukraine, extreme weather events slamming both your country and mine. Billions still in crippling poverty in a world where billionaires are jetting off to space. I mean, polycrisis very much, I think, is the word of the last few years. I wasn't quite sure how to answer that question. You know, it's only four words. Will well-being economics save us? Uh, but at the risk of sounding a bit like a high school debater, I thought I'd just break down that sentence. Will it save us? I mean, that sounds us a little bit of a religious question. And no, well-being economics doesn't make any promises of eternal salvation, but the stakes that that question poses are the right ones. We are talking about civilizational survival. Will economics save us? Well, this is currently formulated, no, but I don't think I have to explain that to the new economy uh, audience. But business as usual economics is driving society off a cliff. We're using resources at an ever-growing rate uh, while presiding over vast wealth inequalities. Here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, 
I was at that governor recently admitted he was engineering a recession which would put 60,000 people out of work to tame inflation, basically prepared to sacrifice people because the economy was paramount. I've realised in my 25 years of advocacy and a decade in Parliament, uh, working with Greenpeace and multiple other organisations, that all the discrete campaigns I've worked on, be it ending offshore oil exploration in New Zealand, reforming rental laws or saving our Maori's dolphins, at the heart they're all economic issues. So we have to engage and change economics uh, as a profession. One of my favourite economists, Harjun Chang, puts it this way, the economy is too important to leave to the economists. The decades we put the economy first and relied on growth to fix the problems and try to recycle that revenue and massively expensive band-aids and ambulances at the bottom of the cliff and then hope that some of that wealth would trickle down. Now, a thought experiment for you. Uh, what do you think would happen to child poverty rates in a country whose economy was 50% richer? Surely you'd think heaps of kids would be lifted out of material hardship if it was 50% richer, right? Well, New Zealand did this experiment. Between 1984 and 2014, the real GDP per capita was 50% higher in inflation-adjusted terms, but the number of children in poverty, 15% in 1984, was still 15% in 2014. But the relative number defining poverty to be a ratio to the average income was in fact double over those 30 years. Likewise, we also see that that wealth isn't being shared fairly. In New Zealand's 2020-2021 Household Economic Survey, the wealth of the country, financial assets minus liabilities, if that was divided into 10 plates of food for a table with 10 diners, one diner would have five plates in front of them, four diners would get a plate of food each, and the remaining fifth at the end of the table would only be able to share a fifth of a plate of food amongst them. Now, with 40 years of evidence, we can categorically say that economic growth, traditional capitalism, and trickle-down economics is a failure. Surely we can now say, with 40 years of experience behind us, they're not just bugs, they're actual features of the system. And that's why changing our economic system is that crucial step. I liken it to an operating system on your phone, you know, it's an Android or an iOS. It allows what programs and apps can run and which can't. This is the question facing us. We need to install a new economic operating system that asks what are the social and environmental contributions of a firm, not just what their quarterly profit is. An uh, operating system that looks at broader measures of progress than just GDP, that ensures everyone has enough to live with dignity and opportunity. I take a lot of optimism from history, though, that economic operating systems have changed before and will change again. Like New Zealand, Australia has seen big transformational economic system changes. Post-colonisation, the liberal reforms of the 1890s, the welfare reforms of the 1930s, the neoliberal reforms of the 1980s. Economic systems are products of design and can be redesigned. And this is, I believe, the most critical vision facing us, is ensuring that economics is pulling it in the same direction as survival. So let's look at that full question again. Will well-being economics save us? A well-being economy is an economy designed to serve people and planet, not the other way around. In a well-being economy, the rules and norms and incentives are set up to deliver quality of life and are flourishing for all people in harmony with our environment by default. A well-being economy directly addresses the root problem of our society and those poly crises we face and makes sure we have dignity, nature, purpose, fairness and participation at the core. So the first question people ask me here in New Zealand uh, this is everyone from cabinet ministers to councillors to ordinary folk, is how do we get there? And um, people are looking on for a, a roadmap, how to get there. 
It's kind of like the old days of exploration under Captain Cook. You know, we don't have this precise map how to get there, but we've got all the big stuff on the chart mapped out. And now we're filling in the details and filling in the blank spaces. I think we can see the continents of the well-being economy on the map in front of us. Purpose has to be at the heart. Moving beyond GDP as a measure of progress has been flawed for decades. We need to move on. We need to prevent problems from occurring in the first place, not spending vast sums responding to that failure. We need to ask the economy to do more of the heavy lifting or pre-distribution rather than just focusing on redistribution. It needs to be people-powered uh, with more participatory elements, be it citizens, assemblies or juries, uh, so ordinary voices can be heard, not just corporate voices. Over winter this past year, uh, I drove around New Zealand in a camper van on what I called an economics listening tour. I was going to do that traditional old politician thing and drive around the country and talk about the exciting uh, new thinking happening in new economics around the world, but I got some advice to turn on its head and talk to ordinary folk whose voices are never heard in the economic debate. So in a series of workshops in towns, large and small, I learned a few really important things. The first thing is that people are really inflated to engage with economics. Even organisations such as the living wage movement, you know, as economically focused as you can get, thought that wasn't an issue that they needed to talk about. What I heard also is that when you ask people to describe the values of the current economy, it's individualistic, extractive, short-term. Isn't it crazy we collectively have a system that none of us collectively say we want individually? And we see that backed up internationally with a global survey showing half of the global population now believe capitalism is doing more harm than good and they're losing trust in government. People want values of economy, but values care, a value of sufficiency. I want values really put at the heart of it. And I think a way we can envision that transition to a well-being economy can be illustrated in Bill Sharp's Three Horizon model. You might like to Google it. It's a wonderfully simplistic and quite elegant uh, framework. Imagine an axis where X is uh, time, Y is viability. We're currently in Horizon One, the, the current, the new, you know, the current normal or business as usual. We know we need that to ramp down over time as we build up towards the third horizon, this well-being economy that puts the well-being of people and planet by default at its heart. Janet Salisbury, welcome to PGAP, live at the NENA conference. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. <laughs> now, why are you at the NENA conference, Janet? Uh, well, I'm the founder of an organisation called the Women's Climate Congress. Um, we formed in January 2020 after the 2019-20 summer bushfires, and it was women coming together to uh, promote action on climate change. We formed with two principles, basically. One was to advocate for women's leadership, but even a bit more than that, to create a space for women to come together to think about their agenda um, in relation to policy, including action on climate change, because women are still often denied a seat at the decision-making table, even when we are there, um, we might have quite good representation, as there is in the Parliament at the moment. The systems, capitalist system, is still highly based on patriarchal 
uh, lens, basically, in the face of patriarchal history. So we were creating a space for women to come and formulate their agenda. And there are two... And, and another very important principle was to bring a collaborative voice to action on climate, to try and get past the uh, polarisation that there is currently, and to create multi-party collaboration towards a national plan that we can sort of all get behind. So, um, And how have things been going over the last yes, couple of years? Yes. Uh, um, have you seen a journey between inception to right here now? Yeah, so, so it's been a really interesting journey and it has uh, involved quite a close association with Nina over, over that time because we've, through conversations that we've had with hundreds of women, many hundreds of women now, we have developed something that we call the Women's Charter for Change or the Women's Climate Congress Charter for Change. And there are two aspects to that charter. One is the first actions are about the emergency things that we think need to happen to secure the climate so that we can feel confident that you know, our future generations are going to have a secure climate. And, and we do think one of those very important things is that there needs to be gender-inclusive governance and women in all, at all levels of decision-making. <clears throat> but then there are also a number of, a whole package of actions in the Charter which we call are for human and planetary well-being. And we found that um, when you started to talk to women, in our case, about action on climate change, all of these other things always came up. Well, I think it, in any group that's the case. And so these, the actions on human and planetary well-being include things like um, listening and learning from First Nations knowledge, intergenerational equity, um, kindness and compassion in governance, but also, importantly, life-sustaining economic principles. And so that is one of the important actions in our Charter for Change, is around changing the way we um, look at economies and bring a different lens to that. So that's the interface with... This interesting in leading that into your vision of uh, life after capitalism yeah. uh, with a lot less patriarchy. <laughs> and it's just yeah. made me think right now of, um, you know, when Jacinda Ardern was in government, in the New Zealand government, yeah. and um, they were entertaining the idea of yeah. well-being economics. And I recall Jacinda saying that that was informed in part by... Um, you know, her as a woman trying yeah. to bring a little bit more yeah. kindness. And, yes. Um, yeah. Well, she was a wonderful case study and role model for um, for the world, and it didn't go unnoticed in the world uh, what she did bring in the relation to kindness and what you might call a feminist lens. There is something called feminist foreign policy which is a bit of a movement around the world and really when you look at what's happening in relation to foreign policy it's very much needed <laughs> a different approach but I think there's also feminist environmental management feminist economics I mean it's a um, it's just a, a different it is a bit of a different lens and it's not to say that um, men who are allies to this type of movement wouldn't think the same way as well but we're just continually trying to find ways of women and men to work together, I suppose, to work this out, to bring a new way of, of being together. Uh, yeah, and, and talking about case studies, Jacinda had her, Ardern was definitely one. 
actually a lot of our thinking in the Women's Climate Congress is based on an amazing case study of the women's peace movement in World War One, when there was something called the International Congress of Women in 1915. 1,500 women came together, and many of them were not didn't well, they didn't even have the vote then, so they weren't trying to get political careers. They just brought their humanity to the table, and they had a plan to end the war through mediation, which was pretty out there because. At that time, the only way you could win a war was by killing all the other people. <laughs> um, and it got taken seriously, but unfortunately it didn't get taken up. But they also had another swag of resolutions which were about how to create the conditions for sustainable peace. So that, in a way, is reflected in the way that we've structured our charter. So we thought that was a wonderful case study of what happens when women come together on their own terms. Because... Uh, so we structured our charter to have those urgent things like stopping the war, that's stopping climate change, and then those other things for longer-term human and planetary well-being. Um, that you know, so that we don't get back into the same trouble again. <laughs> down the yes, road. Yeah. let's not repeat the same mistakes. Yes, yes. let's not repeat the same mistakes again. <laughs> yeah, so, we've done them long enough. Yeah. But the interesting thing is that the resolutions from 1915 for um, sustainable peace. Unfortunately, they didn't get taken up at the Treaty of Versailles, and so we've had war after war. But they have gradually worked their way into human rights uh, law internationally since that time. In fact, when you go back and look at them, they read like an agenda (laughs) for what has gradually happened. So, again, it is just a great case study, and that's been our inspiration, I suppose. So what drew you to the Nina conference, and what are you looking most forward to it in the Um, next two and a half days? Well, well, because I am so interested in these ideas, these holistic ideas about what it, what is the change we want to see, what, what it would look like. And it's in Canberra, and I'm based in Canberra, so yeah, it's nice. a bit of a no-brainer to come along <laughs> yeah, and be part yeah. of the conversation, really. And uh, final yeah. question, if people would like to find out more about the Congress, yes. uh, where can they go and how can they say hello? Yes, well, they can go, we've got a website at uh, www.womensclimatecongress.com and on that website they can join us it's free to join when you join when you join you're invited to into an internet that we have where there's ongoing conversations we also have a facebook group where there's ongoing conversations you can find that just by putting in women's climate congress um, so yeah we, we certainly welcome anybody out there who thinks it sounds interesting to, to join join the conversations. Oh, fantastic. Well, yeah. Thank you for joining EGAP Janet at the Nina <laughs> Life After Capitalism conference. Thank you very much, Michael. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. <laughs>
We are then going to hear from past PGAP guests and degrowth author Anitra Nelson discuss her vision for a gift economy future from the plenary panel discussion, What Could Our Lives Look Like After Capitalism? We will then end this segment with a lunch break interview with conference attendee Anthony Gleason, co-host of the Sustainable Hour podcast and Extinction Rebellion activist. Enjoy. And hey, for it, give it up for Donny! Yay! Well, good morning to you all. And I'm going to start with our bodies, and some of you will be familiar with what we're about to do, because I have a sense that our bodies have a lot to share with us about life after capitalism, about strategies. And for those who've done this experiment before, I encourage you to just participate again and see what happens as you go through this experience. What we're going to do is draw a line down the centre of your page, and in the top right, write the word future, and in the top left, we're going to write the word present. And we're going to start on the right-hand side. I want you to imagine a future that is working for everyone and everything, human and non-human species. Just imagine a future that's working for everyone and everything, an economy that's working for everyone and everything. And when you're connected with some kind of imagery, drop down into your body and feel it. How does it feel in that economy that's working for everyone and everything? And when you've connected with the feeling, draw a symbol or a shape without lifting your pen that represents how it feels in that economy. Okay, now we're going to move to the left-hand side. How does the present economy feel? And again, when you're connected to that feeling, draw a symbol or a shape without lifting your pen that represents how the present economy feels. I've been conducting this experiment for maybe eight or so years, probably with, I'm guessing now, more than 10,000 people across the world, from just about every demographic you can imagine. Age, across the gender spectrum, ideological, religious backgrounds. I've done this with... Fortune 500 executives, uh, done this with people living on the streets, those who describe self-described free marketeers through to anarchists of all different persuasions. And what's interesting to me is that no matter where I do this in the world or with whom I do this, people consistently draw one of four shapes uh, or symbols for the future or a close variation or combination and one of four symbols or shapes for the present or a close variation or combination. So what I'm going to do now is show you what people around the world draw, and then you're going to get a chance to uh, share a little about what you drew. So I'll pull this up on screen here. For the present, uh, for the future, people typically draw a circle, an infinity or panarchy symbol, a spiral, or a heart. Hands up if you drew something, one of those four, or something very close, or a combination of those. Just hold up your hands there and have a look around. Okay. And now we'll look at the future, uh, the present. People typically draw a jagged line, a triangle, usually an isosceles triangle, uh, a downward arrow, or a mess of lines. And again, hold up your hand if you drew one of those four, or a close combination or variation of those. Just having a look around there as well. So what we can see here is 
And in fact, I'm going to invite you to have a conversation for a couple of minutes with those next to you about this, is that the future and the present are very different. But they also have perhaps some trends here. And so the question I'd like you to just take 20 seconds to reflect on, especially looking at what you drew, is what patterns do you notice here across the differences between what people draw for the future and present and maybe what you drew as well? From my experience of this, this experiment, what I draw from the differences, and there are many, and I'm sure many of them were surfaced now, the primary thing that I think is relevant for us is that the future doesn't have any linear objects in it, no linear designs, and the present is entirely linear. So this piece about moving from uh, to the non-linear, from the non from the linear, is really an interesting one, especially given our topic today. If I'm to be speaking about strategies for a life beyond capitalism, one of the biggest pieces that I would like to share on that is that given my experience has been that the, some of the world's wealthiest people, and I've done this with people who are, who are reaching sort of billionaire status, and they draw the same things as perhaps you have done here. What that tells me is that the people we might see as on the other end of the spectrum with regards to conversations around capitalism, for example, are sitting with the same knowing internal that this is actually a, a relatively universal thing where in our bodies we know that we can't stay with a linear system, we have to move to a non-linear system. In other words, people throughout the world are just walking through their daily lives with different levels of cognitive dissonance around this deep knowing. So degrowth advocates argue for a post-capitalist future where everyone's essential needs are met within Earth's limits. I argue, moreover, that a money-free, in-kind economy is essential to achieve ecological sustainability and social equity. That we need a post-money future as soon as possible. It's not a luxury. One model is a real valueist community mode of production. Real values, that's namely social and ecological values, saturate non-monetary perspectives and societies. Here, decision-making focuses on diverse, real, biophysical, ecological, and social measures and values. So, if you want, close your eyes. Now, imagine a global network of collectively sufficient cell-like communities covering Earth, each responsible for the sustainability of the local environs of which they live. Communities of various sizes living within sub-bioregions offering direct, efficient ways of fulfilling their needs, producing locally close to end users. Imagine every diverse, empowered community caring for Earth, organised horizontally, relatively autonomous, and seamlessly networked globally. People have possessions 
but no private property, meaning that you're entitled to use full life, to full use rights to your own room and certain other essentials for living, but all earth is commons with clear and universal principles for commoning, sharing land and other things through secure and fair use rights. Everyone contributes a certain amount of time to collective production. In return, everyone's essential needs are met. Each household guesstimates their needs annually. Working groups report on the capacity of the local area and capability of locals to fulfil those needs. Then these plans are revised and adjusted. Community members plan together in assemblies and other horizontally organised processes how to make what's necessary and decide together who gets what. All year round, they work, monitor and tweak how to fulfil the orders, reporting back to the community at assemblies to revise and replan as necessary. Once established, planning for the essential needs of all members mainly relies on updating previous calculations and taking account of seasonal, social and natural factors. They produce, say, corn, apples, solar electricity, potable water and clothes for particular already specified people. This is production for demand. Money or markets are unnecessary, superfluous. Every service or thing created goes to those who ordered them. So waste is cut to a minimum. Community members also discuss and negotiate compacts to produce for and to receive from neighbouring or more distant communities those goods and services they cannot find, grow or make locally. They don't overconsume, go without or waste. They leave things that they don't need in spare places for others to use. Collective stores exist for emergencies and to fill unforeseen gaps. As necessary or appropriate, Free things are shared with neighbouring and further flung communities. So production for trade, markets and money are replaced with local decision making, direct production for demand and distribution on the basis of need. Thanks very much. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you, Anita. Welcome back to PGAP live at Nina. And I am meeting Anthony Gleeson for the very first time. How are you? I'm good, Michael, thank you. I think we might have been on a few Zooms together over, over the time. But yeah, you've uh, interviewed yeah. me virtually. Yes. I, I think yeah. around music and yeah. activism as well. My hat's off to the Sustainable Hour for bringing arts into the debate. Yeah. And how's yeah. Sustainable Hour and your other endeavours like Extinction Rebellion going? Oh, well, all good. Yeah, they're all interconnected. The Sustainable Hour is very much around giving people hope, I guess, telling the, certainly telling the truth. We're especially interested in regenerative projects, so regenerative farming, just the importance of following ancient wisdom that we have, have ample opportunity for in this country, which has the, the oldest uh, existing uh, culture on the planet. And, and ways of living and, and yeah there's many lessons for us in that and we try to give that as much focus as we can 
a really, really great program. So what brings you to Nina Life After Capitalism and how have you found everything so far? As someone who's an activist against the current system, I have a responsibility to, to look at alternatives and that's what this is about. Very few people are, are happy or satisfied with our economic system, well, our whole way of living at the moment which seems to centre around capitalism and it's the incessant, yeah, the, the greed that, that comes from that, the uh, pursuit of profit at all costs. Some people may benefit from that but the majority of people don't. And the people that do benefit from it aren't satisfied because it's not enough. They want more. So that you know, that's what the, this perpetual growth is all about. This place is so attractive to me, this conference, because it looks at alternatives. It's saying, okay, this, yeah, we agree this is capitalism isn't working as such, so how do we give it a conscience or how do we get rid of it or how do we get it to value people in the planet? That's happening in bucketfuls. Uh, here uh, already and it will this this is the first day of three uh, and there's a a gathering tonight around food which is always good and I'm sure there'll be lots of ideas shared there yeah so it's yeah it's a healthy way of talking to kindred spirits yeah I'll certainly be talking to lots of people here about coming on the show and, and then generating shining a few extra lumens on their ideas and you know out of all of that milestone of ideas we're going to get something that works for a lot more people than it does now so give us yeah. one vision you have for well it's life just it's more, capitalism. yeah well it's just more people oriented it's it's you know people before profits this uh conference and many others like it are occurring because of a lack of consideration of people and the planet and that's got us into the, the term uh, an existential cliff that Mary Graham used this morning and we don't have to fall over that cliff mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's forces certainly forces pushing it over that cliff but we don't have to we can resist that and it, it's all about numbers and people feeling regaining their power to resist and say no I don't want this and you know I don't have to buy this I'm not going to buy it and just like our consumer power but yeah, holding companies accountable for what they're doing uh, you know, the likes of Exxon that just procured another, one of their competitors, so another fossil fuel company, when the whole science is screaming out like they have for been decades. For, for decades. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do <laughs> just it. Don't. And they're saying, well, we are. We're going to do it, so stuff you guys. And I think we have to say, find a way of saying, well, that's not good enough, Exxon. That is Ecoside. Millions of people are going to die from that. And if you look at it in economic terms, whatever comes after trillions of dollars of damage is going to happen. And that's good, that's good for no one's economy. <laughs> it won't be much life at all. Well, that's, who knows? If we don't change around who knows? We're, we're in for just all indication show. And I've studied what, what happened in the Northern Hemisphere over their summer. There are going to be a whole lot of fit, active Australians who are alive now who won't be in February, March. Yeah. Right? Because yeah. Of, of extreme weather events. And that is there's a direct connection between that, between the extreme weather events and the fossil fuels that are going up. So the organizations, the companies that are promoting uh, let's keep let's keep going for a while, let's keep burning fossil fuels. 
they're complicit in that echo side. So it's a matter of empowering people to say that. We don't have to accept this. And Extinction Rebellion, well, that's why people that are standing up non-violently, and that's, that's without uh, arguments. It has to be non-violent. But causing disruption with the, the explicit view of saying, well, OK, this is disrupting people's lives in the short term. It pales in comparison to the disruption that's coming through the climate crisis. So we're going to get insights into that over summer. Already there's been fires in New South Wales that went on for weeks, South Australia, Western Australia, Northern Territory. And it's just springtime. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So... And it seems like some people, it has, they have to be see that yeah. destruction or have to somehow know someone who's yeah. affected. I think you're speaking for everyone here at the conference and great to see it so packed as well. Yeah, it is. It yeah. is. And younger people too. There's probably three, two or three genera- different generations. And that's absolutely crucial that mm. the conversations happen through, across, the across the generations. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. You are listening to the Post-Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. You are listening to PGAP live at the NINA conference. I'm Michael Bayliss. My many thanks to Donnie McClurkin, Anitra Nelson and Anthony Gleeson who all shared their unique perspectives on life after capitalism live in Canberra. A lot of ideas here. Phew. <laughs> We're in the home stretch now. Just a reminder to share and support PGAP if you're liking this episode. And how can I do that? I hear you ask a keyboarder ready. Well, you can subscribe to PGAP on your favourite podcast platform. You can rate and review PGAP on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast rate and review platform. You can share this and other episodes of PGAP with your friends, family, networks, arch enemies and the neighbourhood cat. You can contact PGAP on our podcast site and give us your feedback Thoughts on post-growth related matters or ideas for future post-growth related guests. You can even contact us to vent. One recent listener contacted us to exclusively rip on current Prime Minister Anthony Albanese. Personally, I sympathise with the sentiments. So, the conference wasn't all just clever people with pithy insights. Sometimes it was clever people with pithy insights who also happened to be funny. In the case of the Nina conference, we were graced for our dinner entertainment by professional comedian Tom Ballard, until recently had a particularly topical cutting and on-the-nose show on ABC until it, like McAuliffe soon later, mysteriously disappeared. However, Ballard hasn't left us by long shot. His latest book, I Millennial, is fantastic as it cuts into topics such as the deterioration of the workplace, housing, education and the natural world, just as the millennial generation come of age. As a fellow millennial, only just, I completely relate, and even if you are fortunate enough to be of a completely different generation, I hope you can at least empathise with our shared disgruntlement. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for scheduling the heckling until the end, Michelle. I appreciate that very much. It is a pleasure to be here in a scout hall in Canberra on a Friday night. What the fuck happened to my career? Jesus Christ. 
all the stupid camera political hacks have flown home to one of their properties in their giant po- property portfolios and to grimace through their horrible marriages and we've stayed behind to party. Am I right, you yeah. uh, I'm Tom Ballard. Uh, some people call me a comedian and others call me a shit comedian. And I like to think of myself as a public intellectual. I have jokes about my dick, but also negative gearing. I have, you know, I've been out there involved in political discussion, the kind of discussions you're having at this weekend before. I have co-hosted, or guest-hosted, Q&A on the ABC. People want to see that? Yes, in 2015, the ABC asked me to fill in for Tony Jones for some fucking reason. <laughs> Comedian in his late 20s who dropped out of uni, who once went interviewing the Prime Minister on National Breakfast Radio, referred to her to her face as Goulia Gillard. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why, but I, was, I did it. I was very nervous. It's a live interview, a live TV Q&A. You know, it's live to air. And I thought I'd just get a bit of energy in the room by talking to Katrina. She was in charge of warming the audience up. And I said, hey, Katrina. Sometimes I'll be like, hey, you're on, are you ready for some craziness? Yeah, you're ready for some comedy-ness? And so I turned to Katrina and I said, hey, Katrina, are you ready for some Q&A-ness? The ABC audience was not ready for that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, my uh, official status as a public intellectual was solidified last year when I released my debut book, I'm Millennial, One Snowflake Screen Against Boomers, Billionaires, and Everything Else. <laughs> All right, give us a cheer if you've actually read it. Yeah, that's brutal. Okay, two? We got two. <laughs> Three, alright, I'll take it. Uh, rest assured, it has set the world of Australian politics and literature on fire. And um, I guess that hopefully that some of the things I'm banging on about in that book will be relevant to the kind of discussions you're having here this weekend about a life after capitalism. So, with your indulgence, I might read you a small extract from the uh, introduction to the book to give you a bit of the vibe. I was born in November 1989, the same month the Berlin Wall was single-handedly demolished by David Hasselhoff. <laughs> I didn't do a lot of research. The toppling of the wall heralded the dissolution of the Soviet Union, the end of the Cold War, and the fall of communism. And everyone was very excited about the possibilities of change and freedom in the future. Early that year, a neoconservative at the US State Department by the name of Francis Fukuyama had written a much lauded essay entitled The End of History, in which he argued that the world was now witnessing the end point of mankind's ideological evolution and the universalization of Western liberal democracy as the final form of human government. The political economic system of capitalism was here to stay forever, and everyone could see, hashtag, the West is best. From now on, humanity and politics was just going to be about the endless solving of technical problems, environmental concerns, and the satisfaction of sophisticated consumer demands. Sounds sick, Frank. Good work, everybody. (laughs) Three decades later, I think we can agree that history is still very much going, and it appears to be wielding some big dick energy. In just my lifetime, history has brought us burst bubbles and recessions, globalisation, genocides, oil spills, 9-11, the wars on terror, the emergence of billionaire Silicon Valley psychopaths, a global financial crisis, a failed Arab Spring, the Syrian civil war, ISIS, superpowered creepy surveillance states, Brexit, President Donald Trump, a resurgent alt-far-right, Jeffrey Epstein committing suicide. Uh, Controversial, okay. The collapse of public trust and civil institutions, a crippled labour movement, widespread alienation and loneliness, a broken democracy, a relentless assault on minority rights, a climate crisis, a global refugee crisis, a mental health crisis, an obesity crisis, a cost of living crisis, a housing crisis, a horsemeat crisis, fake news, QAnon, Ebola drones, and strawberries stuffed to the brim with fucking needles. <laughs> Alright, that last one's gone away, but it was pretty intense there for a while. 
In Australia, we've churned through seven prime ministers in just 15 years. Somehow, we've ended up with a de demented billionaire class with too much power, a ghoul-ridden political class that produces nothing but scandals and cringe, and a dumb media class that consistently says and does dumb things that make us all dumber, which is a problem because we're pretty dumb to begin with. <laughs> we all gasp at the mistakes and the lies and the shitfuckery of the people at the top, and then they pretty much get away with it, and we all move on to the next thing, and the old outrages are sucked down our collective memory hole. As we post and meme our anger and dismay, as we lob grenades at one another from the trenches of the endless culture war, as the scope of our political imagination gets smaller and smaller, as we're told about royal commissions and inquiries and reports and reviews and proposals for reforms that never go anywhere, we feel increasingly powerless and cucked. I feel like I'm bumming everyone out of it. <laughs> It's a very funny book. Yeah. <laughs> right now, a better future feels impossible. We really have no idea where we're headed to as a country, as a species, but it's hard to imagine that it's going to be anywhere great. I mean, the film Soil and Green was set in the year 2022. Yeah. Oh. Now, okay, yeah, we didn't start eating people last year, but pretty soon that's going to become more affordable than lettuce. <laughs> This whole everything getting worse thing is a major source of concern to Australian millennials and to Zoomers and Alphas because we're not going to be dead for ages. We're quite peeved about it all, to be honest. See, we were given the impression there was some kind of intergenerational bargain going on. A general understanding that each generation is supposed to leave a better world to the next. But apparently, we're not doing that anymore. <laughs> Most people can see that bargain isn't happening. In 2021, the ABC's Australia Talk Survey found that 65% of Australians think it's harder for young people to get by now than it used to be, and 59% think that young Australians will be overall worse off than their parents. That's not funny either, no. I mean, I wasn't booked to do a comedy set. Anyway, dating's weird, isn't it? How about that Facebook, am I right, guys? The real question now is, is why? Why has that intergenerational bargain been broken and exactly how do we get here? And how did the world and our society get so deranged and unfair? And what, if anything, can we possibly do about it? So I tried writing an accounting of what our country and our world has become in the 40 years since Australian millennials first arrived. It is my attempt to explain just how my generation has come to be so comprehensively screwed over when it comes to the fundamentals of a good life in Australian society. Work, having somewhere to live, learning stuff, collectively owning stuff, economic democracy and the natural world. I tried to write the book that I wish someone had handed me long ago, something that cuts through the bullshit, explains the basics, connects the dots, and can shed some light on why the world feels so weird and bad, and precisely who or what is responsible. Spoiler alert, it's capitalism. <laughs> Alright, you still have to buy the book. <laughs> yeah, that is the villain, capitalism. Not smashed avocado, or kids spending too much time on their phones. But capitalism, specifically the phase of capitalism that's been inflicted upon humanity thanks to the enormous political economic shifts of the 1980s, shifts that were made possible because of the global economic crises of the mid-1970s. The free market revolution championed by Margaret Thatcher in the UK and Ronald Reagan in the US, and to a lesser but still very consequential extent by the Hawke and Keating Labor governments here in Australia, changed everything. Before the introduction of what was once referred to as economic rationalism, we now call it neoliberalism, you had three decades of post-war Australian boom times, a time of record economic growth, full employment economy, rising living standards, strong trade unions, high taxes on the wealthy, falling inequality, and a far more robust and more functional democracy, where the government was willing and able to intervene in the economy for people's benefit, like in the 1940s, when Labor governments 
and a strong labour movement fought for and created to expand the modern welfare state. That's the Australia my parents' generation, the baby boomers, were born into. It wasn't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. Some of you were there to see it. <laughs> uh, most of you, yes. <laughs> and you all look great. <laughs> It wasn't perfect, but in some truly fundamental ways, it was heaps better and fairer than what came after it. The Australia, the my lot, have inherited. I mean, you're at the Life After Capitalism Conference. I'm sure I don't have to do much work to convince you that capitalism sucks butt, and it's very bad. <laughs> but for the sake of filling out the picture, I'll run you through the six areas in which we're most egregiously screwed over, I suppose, under capitalism. First of all, work. Now, work sucks. I've always been against it. That's why I became a comedian. <laughs> in 2022, the polling company Gallup did a global survey that found that 79% of the world's 1 billion full-time workers didn't like their jobs. That seems low to me. <laughs> I assume the other 21% had to fill out that survey in front of their boss. But you guys know the deal. Capitalism divides us into classes, right? You've got the different classes with different relationships with means of production. That means they have different classes with competing economic interests that are diametrically opposed, bingo bango, you got yourself some perpetual class war. For the past 50 years, the people at the bottom have been losing that war. Union density is created. In Australia, we have some of the most draconian anti-worker legislation in the Western world. And surprise, surprise, we also have one of the highest rates of insecure work. Casualisation and underemployment have exploded and wages are either stagnant or going backwards. Australian workers' slice of the pie is getting smaller since the Labor uh, national share of income peaked at 63% in 1973, when unions were strong, it's been on a constant, steady decline. And in 2020, it fell below 50% for the first time in 60 years. It's just constant, maddening, unjust exploitation. And to me, it's baked into the whole rotten system. Secondly, housing. Any landlords in tonight? <laughs> yeah, I can smell it. I can smell it. <laughs> It's good on you for owning up. There are some landlords saying quiet. Don't be ashamed, landlords. Don't be ashamed of the fact you're a landlord. Just own it, you know? That's what you people love doing. Just own it, okay? Just own it. I'm sure you're one of the good ones. The Australian housing market is tremendously monumentally cooked. I'm sure I don't have to convince you of this either. According to the ABC's finance expert, Alan Kohler, since 1980, real global house prices have risen by 68%. Over that same time, prices in Australia have exploded by 568%. Yeah, tell me about it! Almost 70% of Australian baby boomers, like my parents, have become homeowners by the time they reach their early 30s. Less than half of millennials, like me, have been able to do the same. And since the early 1980s, home ownership for those aged 25 to 34 on the lowest incomes has crashed by a whopping 40%. While workers have been losing the class war and been copying those flat wages, houses have become more and more and more and more expensive. National median house prices in Australia have increased from around three or four times median household incomes in the 70s to almost nine times median incomes today. Why is that the case? Because of deregulation and speculation and outsourcing responsibility. Hawke and Keating deregulated Australia's finance sector in the 80s, relaxing lending laws and gleefully welcoming a flood of blood-sucking foreign banks to our shores. And then they and the Howard government cooked up insanely generous tax concessions to actively encourage property investment and speculation. At the same time, state and federal governments stalled and slashed funding for public and social housing. They flogged a whole lot of it. And a society basically outsourced the provision of housing, the basic human need of shelter, to the profiteering private market. The Australia that millennials have inherited is one that has effectively dehumanised, commodified and financialised housing. Neoliberalism has taken the concept of a home and turned it into an asset, a product, an exciting investment opportunity that's the key to a happy and secure retirement. It's not a place to be valued and somewhere to live and raise a family, it is a place to park and grow capital. And that has been a disaster. 
when it comes to education. Neoliberal capitalist logics have run wild there too. You only get the best results when you run things for profit, of course. So it's important to hack away public schools and to privatise education as much as possible. Something I came across researching the book. Australia now has one of the highest rates of private schooling in the world. Fun fact, the independent schools in the independent and Catholic sector, they receive about $13 billion from the Commonwealth government every single year, which doesn't seem very independent to me. <laughs> then again, what would I know? I went to a public school. I might not be the best advertisement for the Australian public education system. <laughs> Look at me now, I'm speaking at a scaffold, and I've done write a book! <laughs> Thank you for that tepid round of applause. <laughs> Of course, if you're a young Australian, after primary and secondary school, you might want to go to, uh, on to study further uh, tertiary study. Unfortunately, we now consider the desire to learn things about the world to be a crime for which young people should be punished with mountains of student debt. So, just recapping, neoliberalism and capitalism has ruined work, housing and education, which is pretty impressive. It has also given rise to a society in which almost every public service and piece of infrastructure has been privatised, and in which the rich just seem to get richer and richer while everyone else is treading water. By the time millennials were reaching adulthood around the turn of the millennium, Labour and Liberal governments had flogged off anything and everything they could to the private market. Electricity, gas, hospitals, health insurance, prisons, public transport, roads, airports, radio stations, the Commonwealth Bank, Qantas, Telstra, Australia Post had been corporatised and principles of market competition had infected every single part of the public service. This has been an absolute disaster. <laughs> Privatisation has screwed over Australian consumers, workers, the environment and the integrity of our democracy. It's failed to live up to its own promises of reducing inefficiency, lowering prices, improving services or sparking innovation. And yet it's allowed to just continue, accepted by the political class and the experts as solid and good economics that can never be challenged or reversed. The most evil example of this, of course, is the national shame job, our aged care system. Yeah. Millennials are still a very way, far way off from entering nursing homes, but for what we can see, doesn't look good. <laughs> I actually think we can do pretty well in the nursing home. We're used to renting. <laughs> Smashed avocado, mashed banana, it's all the same. <laughs> Obviously, the deregulation of that system has just given rise to an absolutely cruel and horrific system which we saw through the Royal Commission to Aged Care. Meanwhile, the vampires that own these private companies have made out like bandits, because that, that is the system now. In the post-war era, inequality was falling across the developed world, and for a period of time, Australia was probably one of the most egalitarian places on the face of the earth. But since the 1970s, that's been completely reversed, and now the 10 richest men in the world own more wealth than the two-thirds of humanity. 70 of the world's biggest economies aren't countries, they're corporations. In Australia, the top 1% owns more wealth than the bottom 70% of the country combined. We've now got more than 140 billionaires in this country, while at the same time, more than 3 million Australians are living below the poverty line. That's everything. Oh, yeah, and the world's on fire. <laughs> Another delightful element of capitalism's legacy. Humanity has now pushed the planet to the brink. We're heading for a well over 1.5 degrees warming, and the ice caps are melting, and the Great Barrier Reef is getting more bleached than an Instagram model's anus. <laughs> it has never been more apparent than in the 21st century that capitalism has this death drive, right? Infinite growth on a finite planet, more profits, more profits, always. And that drive has created this crisis and is the capitalist class that stands as the main barrier in our way of seriously doing anything about it. Our fossil fuel economy has funneled enormous amounts of wealth into the hands of a tiny class of very powerful corporations and individuals. And for them, saving the planet is very bad business. These guys are not going to go quietly. They're extremely keen on maintaining the massive profits they make from turbocharging the climate crisis. And so for more than half a century, they've been using all that wealth and power to wage a war on science, the truth, democracy, all forms of serious climate action, and by extension, you and me. So yeah, that's the book. <laughs> <laughs> I've got about, uh... <laughs>
My generation has lost the class war, we can't afford a house, we've been pushed into debt, everything in our society is ripping us off, our society is dominated by the rich, and we're freaking out about environmental breakdown. And unfortunately, the release of my book did not fix all that. It's quite disappointing, the book. It didn't end capitalism, nor did it make me very much money. But I know, obviously, you've been talking a lot about critiques of capitalism, and you will over the course of the weekend, and you're interested about this, this life after capitalism, a, a vision of what the future is and how things could be better. To answer that, if you'll indulge me again for a final time, I will uh, read a, a short passage from the end of the book. Is that okay? Yes. In many ways, it's very bleak. Some argue that with Sanders and Corbyn's out of the picture and generally sideline left, the millennial socialism moment is over. It was a wild and crazy fad, and it's done. Now we can all go back to doing sensible politics again, in which the centrist grown-ups carry on doing what they do, changing nothing while everything gets worse. I'm not so sure. And not just because, if that is true, I will have been seriously owned. I think there's still life in this movement yet. Because while Jezza and the Byrne might have been defeated, the failures of neoliberalism that they've rallied against are still with us. And people still fucking hate it. The Australia Talk survey found that half of all Australians agree that capitalism as it exists today does more harm than good. And a whopping 76% agree that the gap between the rich and the poor is too big. I cannot believe it when I read those results, <laughs> and no one commented on it at all. Uh-huh. You know, Murdoch Media didn't talk about it because there were results from a survey conducted by the gay BC. <laughs> <laughs> As we've seen throughout this book, issue polling consistently shows that the Australian people are well to the left of our political and media classes on so many big issues. From workers' rights to public ownership, from strengthening the welfare state to big democratic interventions in the economy for the sake of serious climate action. Working people are overwhelmingly and increasingly dissatisfied with the ways in which our capitalist liberal democracy is failing them, and as long as that's the case, anti-capitalist politics will have a chance of breaking through. This is what gives me hope. Hope for millennials, for Zoomers, for Australia, for the future. Even with all the economic and social power backing it in, most ordinary people can still see through capitalism's bullshit and they know the extreme inequality that it produces is not the natural order of things. Yes, we do live in a society, goddammit. Neoliberalism is based on a dirty fucking lie and collectivism isn't dead. We can make a society in which we can be human beings with a stake in something bigger than ourselves as opposed to just alienated consuming automatons brutalised by our exciting permaflexy lifestyle brought to us by Uber Life. <laughs> there is an alternative to this. There has to be. Otherwise, we're fucked. For me and for millions of millennials all over the world, these strange times have delivered us this massive, intense and liberatory revelation. Getting socialist pilled and learning that so much of what we've been told about our society and the world is total bullshit can be very disorienting and sometimes quite scary. But it's also amazing, because it feels like you're able to see the world clearly for the first time. You can begin to understand the giant forces that have been shaping human history on an epic scale and have led to the creation and organisation of everything around us today. Once that light bulb goes on, you soon realise that you're getting at the truth, the same truth that millions of your fellow human beings have come to see over the past few centuries too. The end of history and the voices of the ruling class might insist that socialism has been a universal failure and that calling yourself a socialist is ridiculous and dangerous and majorly cringe. But read enough history and you'll learn that an anti-capitalist or socialist politics has been found in the heads and hearts of everyone from Albert Einstein to Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
Helen Keller, Nelson Mandela, and Malcolm X were all leftist radicals. Great writers like Oscar Wilde, H.G. Wells, Ursula K. Le Guin, James Baldwin, James Joyce, Ernest Hemingway, Dorothy Hewitt, Kurt Vonnegut, Arthur Miller, and George Orwell were all socialists, as was Nina Simone, Richard Pryor, astronomer Carl Sagan, and George freaking Michael. And, based on all the nice stuff he says, Pope Francis. <laughs> in one exhortation, the Pope argued that trickle-down economics expresses a crude and naive trust in the goodness of those wielding economic power and in the sacralized workings of the prevailing economic system. He then went back to live in his city made of gold. <laughs> and yes, socialist, communist, leftist ideas have played a huge part in shaping the Australia we know and love. Literally, hero John Simpson Kirkpatrick, Simpson and his donkey fame, was a unionist supporter and a socialist. While the humanitarian ophthalmologist Fred Hollows, native title rights hero Eddie Marbo, and the beloved Gardening Australia host Peter Cundall were all yeah. peace-loving commies. Yeah. The International Women's Day, we celebrate every March, was established by explicitly socialist working-class women as part of their fight for suffrage and against capitalist exploitation, while the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras originated with a brave struggle of anti-capitalist queers. It's been a socialist vision that has guided the Australian Labor Party when it's been at its best, from Curtin and Chifley to Whitlam and his treasurer Jim Cairns. It is the promise of a world beyond capitalism that's inspired ordinary Australians to organise, strike, campaign, scream, sweat, blood and even die in the fight for a better tomorrow. That same fight rages today. And as far as this entitled little snowflake sees it, we really have no choice but to join that fight. And that requires us to see ourselves and as each other as we truly are, first and foremost. Not strangers, not consumers, not competitors in some brutal war of all against all, not millennials, or Zoomers, or Alphas, or Xs, or Boomers, but as something else. Comrades. Thank you very much. You are still listening to Postgrowth Australia podcast. I'm your host, Michael Bayliss, and you are listening to a very special episode live at the New Economy Network Australia Conference Life After Capitalism. We just heard from that irrepressible Tom Ballard. Now, just when you thought too much Nina and too much PGAP were barely enough, we've come to the end of this episode. And I would like to take the opportunity to thank all the organisers at the Nina conference, including Jonathan Miller, who hosted me while I was in Canberra, and Michelle Maloney, Nina Convener, and regular guests on PGAP. All opinions, including past and present legacy from all presenters and interviewees on this episode, are theirs alone and don't always reflect the views, ideologies or representation of PGAP or Sustainable Population Australia who support this podcast. I thought I might save the best for last. Andrew Skiok is one of Australia's best-known sound recording artists and founder of Listening Earth. His recordings and the way he interprets these are truly inspirational as they highlight the communicative intelligence present in nature that we so often overlook. Andrew presented at the last day plenary session, Deep Listening to Nature Reveals How Life Cooperates Rather Than Competes. He also took the time off from volunteering at the conference to speak with me one-on-one. I finish off this episode with Andrew's interview, followed by excerpts from his presentation. This is a perfect way to end the episode. So from me, folks, until next time, until then. Welcome back to PGAP live at the Nina conference. I'm sitting with Andrew. Hello, Andrew. G'day, Michael. And you're one of the unofficial helpers. Would that be a, a fair enough? <laughs> well, look, I'm, I'm, 
I'm booked in as a speaker mm. and I'll be speaking tomorrow morning, but I'm just helping out wherever I can. I think if you're talking about a, a post-growth economy of any form, it's, it's muck in and, and help your community and, and so for this weekend that's what I'm doing. And that's good. You haven't put yourself in a rigid presenter box. <laughs> no, it's yeah. a very wobbly presenter box. <laughs> yeah. It's a circular yeah, that's yeah, it. Yeah, relationship. Yeah. Um, so what's brought you to the Nina Conference? Well, I'm a wildlife sound recordist. For the last 30 years, I've been uh, initially in Australia and increasingly around the world creating soundscape recordings and publishing those. And it's partly because... I just love the beauty of the natural soundscape, but it's also over that time I've not only learned how to listen to nature, which is quite a skill that as modern people we've forgotten how to do, but it's also the more I've gone into it and my curiosity has drawn me into into questioning what am I hearing here? What what are birds and animals doing when they're communicating? Because it's a very complex communication system, particularly in... Um, in mature environments and I've come up with some understandings which I think are really relevant to an event like this where we're talking about how do we how do we work out how to live on this planet sustainably and without doing harm to each other and and the thing is nature's already solved that problem <laughs> it's done it a lot of times and mm. a lot of those solutions are actually communicative and I do find it very interesting that just as we're almost peaking in the Anthropocene, this is a time where Western science is finally grasping and understanding that animals are a lot more yeah. intelligent than we typically gave them credit for with um, complex communications and yes, language right. abilities, even like plants and yeah. mycelium, yes. um, has a communication and a rhythm to it. We're just scratching the surface. Yeah, and I think one of the big problems with science is that it, it objectifies things, which has a certain benefit, but when you separate yourself from the thing that you're studying whilst it gives you objectivity it also it, it distances your instinctive and intuitive understandings of, of what's happening so the fact that science has taken this long to understand what indigenous people have known all along is is not particularly surprising but it is revealing in the in the way that science has, has come up with these you know these extraordinary understandings of what's going on around us in, in natural systems. And I hope some of this recording picks up some of the bird language yeah, that's, that's, that's around us. They're nuisance, aren't they, interjecting like this? It's <laughs> very impolite of them. I know. <laughs> they could have stuck up a hand or a wing or they something. They could have asked yeah. permission, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Have there been any highlights so far at Nina and or is there anything you're particularly looking forward to over the next one and a half days or just all the above? Well, sort of all of the above. I've said to somebody just now, is you know how are you how are you travelling with this? There's too many ideas and not enough neurons. I feel a bit overwhelmed with ideas. And but the thing that I take from it is that however people are approaching this issue of um, how we think about the systems under which we live, economic governance, and and so on. There's, there's kind of a common theme to it all. 
and it's it's that human level of of coming back to our fundamental needs and how we can share together rather than be separate individual consumers with wants i find this extraordinarily reassuring you know instead of this being a, a hardship it it's a real joy because it it gives you a sense of purpose within your community um, it builds community, it builds capacity. There's a sense of grounding yourself in your interactions, not only with people, but what your, what your needs actually are. It just feels from, from this abstract modern world that fills us with anxieties and apprehensions, fear for the future, problems that seem intractable. There are ways of approaching it together that can resolve a lot of this and lead to a much better, much more fulfilling and enjoyable way of, of life. Well, I relate to everything that you've said, particularly about the ideas versus the available neurons. I'm <laughs> <laughs> definitely <laughs> feeling that. Also just being able to talk to degrowth with people um, yeah. without feeling like you're a complete nutcase like I do in wider society or having yeah. to try and explain it in 25 seconds or less, however long it takes. I think that the best way that I've found to understand it is that all of life is based on energy. Mm. You know, creatures take in energy and they transform it into activity, reproduction. Um, in our case, we've learnt the trick of transforming it into technologies of one kind or another, and whether that's agriculture and animal husbandry or increasingly utilizing resources with with physical technology and of course now we've we've found the mother load of all energy sources which is oil a lot of our modern world is based upon this this energy the correlation between oil and gdp is practically 99.9% it's it's almost exact and so as we look towards the energy future you can see that whether sooner or later there's going to be a decline in, in oil production for one reason or another, and that's assuming that we don't have some terrible geopolitical event that brings it much more Sing into the near here, future. Yeah. Um, and so we are going to have to live with less energy, and that means by, by absolute necessity that uh, our economies, by classical economical mm. measures, um, contract. That doesn't mean to say that we don't live good lives and enjoyable mm. lives, but you know what you're talking about with degrowth, it's going to happen. Exactly when and how we don't know whether it's going to be a, a very painful unwinding or whether we can engineer a soft landing, but I'm, I'm hoping for the soft landing. Yes. <laughs> and I, that's what I'm hearing from people here is, is to how to engineer that soft landing and most people aren't even, it's not even on their radar, mm. but it's, as soon as you start looking at, at energy economics and natural systems, you, it's so obvious that this is what's coming. Well, it's great that we've got a packed conference of people yes. willing to talk about it, and hopefully that's just scratching the surface of the people all across Australia and abroad who are thinking about this very issue. Um, thank you so much for your time, Andrew. Um, where can we hear your soundscapes? Listening Earth is our recording label, and that's where the soundscapes uh, are that you can listen to. They're also on Spotify and, and other streaming platforms. 
The book that I've written recently is called Deep Listening to Nature, and that's where I explore not only how to listen to nature, but you know what we can learn about nature from listening, interpreting what we're hearing. And then the third section of the book is is about what we can, you know, so what? What can we learn mm. about that? And that's also available on the website. <laughs> you can hear these, these two. You can hear them talking backwards and forwards to each other. Yeah. These two magpie larks. That's their, their little... G'day, I'm over here. Yep, I'm over here. <laughs> and they're using exactly the same call to do it. Yeah. So these will probably Incredible. be... I mean, they've got quite a few different calls, but mm. the, that, you can hear they're using exactly the same call. So they're recognising and responding to each other in like kind. Thank you for your time, Andrew. <laughs> my, yeah. my pleasure, Michael.
how different these dialects are. Now the other thing that birds do in the dawn is that they don't all sing over the top of each other, they alternate their songs. It's a process called counter singing. This is a white-eared honey-eater that uh, lives in the front garden of, of where we live, and they are wonderful counter singers. Have a listen to these two white-eared honey-eaters as they call backwards and forwards to each other. Except this particular call. This is the call that is reserved for their spring dawn singing. Here's what they sound like in winter. And you can hear that while they're calling, there's not much else going on. This counter singing and, and connecting with neighbours, uh, building relationships with neighbours can get spectacularly sophisticated and complex. This is another one of my, my favourite outback birds. It's a white-fronted honey eater, and they have an amazing repertoire of what I think of as kind of mechanical sound effects. And here are two birds, and they are locking the, their calls backwards and forwards to create an almost seamless performance that will go on for maybe 40 minutes or so. Every species has a behaviour or a suite of behaviours by which they negotiate their interactions, particularly their access to vital resources. It might be breeding status, it might be nesting hollows, it might be anything. But they do so without doing harm to each other. And this tells us that natural selection, well, it's disadvantageous to go busting your, your fellow, your kin. You know, they might be the breeding animal for the next season. So the, the third thing I want to quickly talk about is, uh, is feedback loops. You're probably familiar that in most ecosystems, feedback loops uh, dictate things like energy flows, and resources, and nutrients, and so on. But they're acoustic and communicative as well. And to illustrate this, I want to take you to the cloud forests of Papua New Guinea. Overnight, these forests sound like this. That is a feline in the 
standing whistle with the sooty owl. Then the Thorn Forest happens, and it's full of the most amazing bird life, many of which bird families in Papua New Guinea are the same as Australian ones, things like rigid whistlers, fantails, uh, as well as the paradise, silent forest group thereafter. That's not what happens. Just on sundown, as the last light uh, disappears from the sky, the most extraordinary thing happens. The cicadas have a dusk chorus. And I can't play this loud enough, but this is what it sounds like. After about 20 minutes, 30 minutes, the whole forest has reset into that nighttime chorus that we began with. You've got um, amplifying and, and de amplifying feedback loops with a reset button, the cicadas, and the, the sum of all these feedback loops is homeostasis. So, if we're talking about learning from nature, not just listening to learn about nature, but listening to learn from nature. So the first thing, listening, listening to sentience. I think of the potential of what we can become as a society is to once again become a listening culture. 
And I hear this in indigenous cultures. They listen to the land. They don't just listen to noises. They're listening deeply to the way things work and learning about it and finding out how to live within it. So we need to become, once again, a listening culture, which is to develop our empathy and our care for attending to the natural world. Our civil institutions and civil society, and I'd say that they are, not surprisingly, largely communicative ones. If we don't communicate, we are not going to be able to do all the other things that we are talking about. We can have the most wonderful alternative economic ideas and systems, but if we're not communicating them with kindness and inclusion, we're simply not going to be able to do this. So we need to get the communication right. So there's some thoughts for you to mull over. Thank you very much for listening. And, uh...